2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Let's pray together. Father, we want whatever you want for us today. We know, Lord, you have nothing but good things, Lord, in our lives for a reason. Because you want us to glorify you. Lord, you've called us to be your disciples. Jesus, you said if we continue in your word, we're your disciples indeed. So, Lord, would you use these verses to speak to us, to bring us closer to you, to comfort, to encourage, to exhort, to to redirect, and just to make us more mature, Lord, so that we can go out and preach your gospel and obeying the Great Commission. We commit it to you in the mighty, amazing, unmatched name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So the Lord's just put it on my heart to kind of change a little bit, not permanently, I hope. I mean, that's up to him, but we're going through the book of Proverbs. That's how he's led us. And so, but he just put this passage and a lot of things on my heart. And so it's kind of, Related to the subject matter in this verse, you're like, how does that relate to my life? How do they, well, it really relates in pretty substantial ways to our lives as believers. Sometimes we're living in our world, it's easy to think that, you know, the false teaching and the false doctrine and all these things that are out in the world and everything is at an all-time high. In some aspects, that could be true. In other aspects, it's definitely not true. Because once you know your Bible, you know that false teaching has been around for a long time. False teaching and false doctrine actually, now just hold on, let me explain, started in heaven. Got quiet all of a sudden. But there's a reason why that happened. Lucifer, a beautiful angel, we're told in Scripture, was found with pride in his heart. And he usurped God. And because of that, he 
was cast down to earth. But before that, we're told in Scripture that a third of the angels were deceived and went, were cast down with him. It doesn't say that they were deceived into going down to earth because they couldn't probably get to earth unless that was God's deal. So they probably were deceived into thinking that Lucifer was, was something greater, greater than he was, and they were cast down to earth with Lucifer. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that the angels are innumerable, that no man can number them. There's so, there's so many. So I don't know how many angels there are in total, uh, but a third of them is, could be quite a bit if it's innumerable for man to count. So that's a lot of angels. Uh, and so because of that, Lucifer, he now is referred to as Satan. It doesn't say that he was transformed, you know, you know, the transformed thing, sorry. It doesn't say he was transformed. It doesn't say he was changed to this maniacal guy with a pitchfork. That's all a caricature that this, that, that's just come about. He's, he's a fallen angel. We're not told beyond that that he changed into this wicked-looking imp or something like that. The demons, demons are just those fallen angels. Those third of the angels that went with them, that's what they are. They're fallen angels. They're called demons. They can possess unsaved people, and they can, we've seen one example, they can possess animals. Um, you read the Gospels, and they were ca- Jesus cast them into some, some pigs. So there was false doctrine at that point, but then after that was taken care of, then there's obviously no false doctrine in heaven. Then there was the Garden of Eden, and Satan cast doubt on what God had said. Did God, hath God said, cast, cast doubt on what he told uh, Adam and Eve there. And Eve was deceived, and Adam disobeyed willfully. We're told that. In Romans, he's held accountable, not Eve, for the fall of man. And all through the Old Testament, there's false prophets, there's false shepherds, these lying shepherds that would tell the children of Israel that everything's good, prosperity is great, and all that, you're doing great, and all that. When God had sent prophets to tell them, no, you're apostate, you're turned away from God, you're serving false gods, you're all this stuff, and they would tell the truth, they'd get persecuted, and a lot of them were killed. Jesus talked about which of the prophets didn't your fathers kill to the Pharisees. And so there, there's been false teaching in the, in, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus dealt with religious false teachers and confronted them. One of the harshest rebukes of any kind of teacher happens in the Gospels in Matthew, where he, I believe it's 19, where he rebukes those, deceit, those uh, deceiving uh, Pharisees because they loved the power and all of that. So they were teaching, confronted that. Then in the book of Acts... And I want to read to you a passage out of the book of Acts, chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is on the island of Miletus. And he's meeting with, he's called for his elders from Ephesus. He was in Ephesus for three years. It's the longest ever recorded place he was at in the, in the book of Acts. He was there for three years, we're told at least that. And he was there and discipled these leaders. And he called them to himself in this island of Miletus. And he said this, he said, for in verse 27, Acts 20, 27 through 31, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So that's why we do what we do with teaching the whole Bible. Verse 28, therefore, take, I'm not asking you to look at this, I'm just reading it. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, 
This is important that he says this. That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. With tears. Warning about false teachers among them. Or and from without and from within. What an incredible warning. And then you have the epistles, which are the letters. That's another word for letter. Um, if you're new to the Bible. And, and so these letters were written. That's from Acts to the Revelation, pretty much. And the... False teachers there were had to be dealt with as well. There was false teachers that would follow the apostles around and come after them like the cowards that they were. And they would undermine everything that the apostles taught. And they would take advantage of people. And they had a rule in the early church that if they want to stay, if, if any leader that claims to be a leader wants to stay more than, I forget what it is, 24 hours or two days or whatever, they're a false teacher. And that just went throughout the whole church. They were just protection. Don't because they didn't have Motel Sixes and you know Hampton Inns or anything like that. There was hospitality, so they'd take them in, and then they would take advantage of them, and then they would just stay there and all of that. And these people are trying to like, well, he claims to be a teacher, you know, and they didn't have, they didn't have their Bibles. They didn't have any way to test, you know. All this was all new, and so and the apostles had to deal with this, and and so you know even after the apostles were off the scene, false teachers taught their heresy and. And leaders in the church had to deal with it. There was the different councils and all this stuff all the way up to today. And there would, we have plenty of cults today. We have false beliefs. We have in, incredible deception out in the culture. We have error coming from the news, entertainment, government, schools, and universities. And yes, it's the most sad thing of all, from pulpits. So I'm sorry to paint a bleak picture of how it is, but you know this. You, you're, you're out there. You see it. And the thing is, with the more you're familiar with the standard, God's word, the more you see the air. It's just like if you have someone build a house that isn't experienced or whatever, and they've never been trained. They don't know how off that, that living room wall is, <laughs> or the roof is, or the floor is, or whatever. They don't know how off it is until someone that comes in that knows the standard, the code, comes in and says, do you realize how that, that this is this and this is that or whatever? And like, no, I had no idea. I, I, I had no idea. Well, yeah. So the closer you get to God's word, that's so important for to be feeding upon God's word. To be able to know the difference between truth and error because you can't just trust. And Paul deals with this in one of his epistles. He talks about Satan appears as an angel of light. And no, no wonder that his, his servants appear as workers of, of righteousness. They don't have a sign that says, we're deceivers, because many of them are deceived themselves. So we have to have that responsibility. Responsibility is not on anyone else supremely but ourselves in terms of knowing what's the truth and all of that. We have to take ownership of that. You can't take a leader with you everywhere you go and say, how does this sound? Is this right? Is this biblical? No, that's not what we see in the New Testament. You have to know yourself. And, and that's the responsibility each of us have. That's why we teach through the Bible, our Bible studies, and we have all these resources, and we, re, we refer people to different websites and equipping things. It's all to build that biblical foundation. So today I sense that we need to look, to look a little bit about foundation and know, knowing what's true, but also to look at the false teachers and their end, because we can think that there's, they're going to get away with it if we're grieved by it. If we already see it, we know it's wrong, and we think, they're just going to get away. They're getting away with it. These cults, are, they're not going to get away with it. 
There's going to be a day of reckoning for all of us, whether we're believers or not. There's going to be a great white throne judgment from believers, and there's going to be a bema seat, judgment seat of Christ for believers. Two separate things. But we're all going to have to face a day of reckoning. And God sees all of it. He hates it the work more than anybody else. And he's going to deal with it. Trust me. He's going to de- trust God's word. He's going to deal with it. Briefly, the context for Peter is that Peter's at the end of his life. The date of this epistle is between 67 and 68 AD. He's about to get martyred by Nero, the, the Roman emperor there. Tradition says he was crucified in Rome upside down. He didn't want to be crucified like his Lord, and that ended his life. That's what tradition says. Of course, we don't know ultimately, but Jesus did say at the end of John's gospel, he said that when you're old, someone's going to take you where you don't want to go. So that was 30 years later, or 40, 35 years later, around that time. So he knew he was going to be old. And I know he, God used that by the Holy Spirit to show, I'm not going to waste time. I'm going to, I got this time. I'm, not, I'm going to be old. Now, maybe he asked Jesus later, what does old mean? I don't know. I don't think because of that conversation he got into more specifics and just left it, left it there. The text divides, our text we're going to look at divides this way. Verses 16 through 18 speak of Peter's personal testimony. Verses 9, verse 19 speaks of God's written word is the ultimate standard. Verses 20 and 21 explain how this ultimate standard came about. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 gets specific on the tactics of false teachers. So let's start in verse 16 of chapter 1. It says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So today, what do you hear? Well, those are fables. You guys believe that? That's the stories? Are you still believing that stuff? Yeah, we're still believing that stuff. That stuff that's historical. Did you know that there are Roman historians that recorded the facts outside of the Bible of the, the Christians and all of that and said and verified all those things? Not that we need the world's validation for God's word and history, but there are Roman historians. There's all kinds of historians <laughs> that validate that. So the, it, Peter's saying we didn't make up fables. We didn't make up any of this stuff. We were eyewitnesses. This is Peter's testimony. And when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice at the end of verse 16, it says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What does that speak of? No one's calling me, your highness, thankfully. There's a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And Jesus revealed himself to those disciples when he decided to do, and then what he's talking about here, let's, let's look at this here. For he received from God the Father, verse 17, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The cults say, how can he receive glory and honor if he's God? He claimed to be God, so how can he receive honor and glory? You can honor, you can give you know, honor and glory to, but this is a unique honor and glory. See, he came as the son. He condescended himself. He was with the father from the beginning. In John chapter 17, when he prays that great high priestly prayer, when he, and he said, the glory that I had with you before the world began, Jesus didn't start existing in that feeding trough. 
He's eternal. He's co-equal with the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of scripture for that. So he's, he's, he was there and, and he you know, received this glory and honor because he was doing the work of the Son. It's not like he, was at the, he didn't know this was coming. It's not like he didn't know this plan before he came to earth. He knew all of that. But the Father bestowed on him honor and glory as far as Moses and Elijah were concerned. Because they were there. It's all talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what this is talking about. On the Holy Mountain. He's there. We looked at it when we went through the book of of, uh, uh, Matthew and Mark. We saw that. The Mount of Transfiguration. That's a whole other. You can get that on our website. Go down, scroll down, and listen to that if you want. But this, this honor and glory, he's saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The interesting thing is he already said it at the Lord Jesus' baptism. Do you remember that? At his baptism, he said that. And it's interesting, the tenses then were, this is my son in whom I am already well pleased. Hadn't completed one miracle. Hadn't done any of those things. He's already pleased. Why? Because he's living, he's, he's God in human flesh, of course, but he's also, the human part of him was submitted, which is, you know, he's all God, all human, I know all that. So that, that he's there, and he's living, he's submitted. We see him in, in, in Luke, he's seen him at the age of 12, being about his father's business. He's asking questions at the temple. The, the parents were already gone. And, and they had to come back or whatever. They used to travel in caravans. And he's there. And then we don't know what happened except he was in submission to his earthly father and being a great example and growing and learning and all that. We're told a lot about the things that he, how he developed in the book of Hebrews. So that, that's, that he said, I am already well pleased. He's already Remember, he said, which of you convicts me of sin? There was silence then, there's silence today. There was silence before he, was, before he started his public ministry. He's sinless. James, who wrote the book of James, is his half-brother. They shared the same mom, but not the same dad, in a sense. And, and, and you can imagine growing up with, with the Lord Jesus and never having a sibling in your house that never sinned. Talk about making you look bad. <laughs> but he said here he said it again on the Mount of Transfiguration and if you remember from the account that the God the Father interrupted Peter saying hey it's good that we should be here <laughs> that's great so needed thank you Peter and he's talking and then the Father and he's interrupted by God the Father that's pretty bad when you're if you feel bad about saying something dumb look to that instance where Peter's there because that always comforts me Verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's saying, this is our, this is our experience. This isn't something that we made up. See, you don't die for something you know to be false. You don't. Peter knew if Jesus rose from the dead or not. The disciples knew. You're not going to follow someone that's still in the grave. The, the lie was they, the disciples stole the body. Are you kidding me? They're going to go steal that body, risk their lives with the Roman guard in front of the tomb for a Messiah that can't raise himself from the dead and said he would and he didn't. Why would you do that? That makes no sense at all. So Peter saw him, among the other disciples, saw him risen. And so he he knew this whole thing was true. So he said, this is all true. But then verse 19, notice we give something that's even better than Peter's eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 19. 
And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. The old King Jimmy says the more sure word of prophecy. But it means the same thing. We have have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter is saying here, look, I have personal experience. We were eyewitnesses to this. But you weren't. You weren't. Remember the two men on the road to Emmaus? They were there and they were talking about, oh, we had hoped and, you know, these women said this stuff. And Jesus didn't say, why didn't you believe the women? He said, why didn't you search the scriptures? You need to look back at the scriptures. And then he says, from Moses all the way, he went through and spoke of all the things concerning himself or the things concerning himself. I wish I would have audio of that. Wouldn't, don't wouldn't you love to have that? I'm unbelievable. So he always points to God's word because we weren't there. And many, many of the people that received Christ on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men and plus women potentially, um, and the implications of that and all of that, those things, there was no eyewitness testimony. No one saw Jesus. And they had to have his word after that. And, And Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come to you. And he said, the whole, he validated the whole Old Testament and then he promised the New Testament and said, I'll bring all these things back to your remembrance. That's how they can know these things. They're not always in the room, but the Holy Spirit gives them those things. So we're told this word of God should be the foundation, not someone's eyewitness, even, even someone's eyewitness testimony. Don't take that, you know, even, even us. He's saying it's confirmed. That's the standard. That's the, that's the focus. And then he gives us a little indication of how that happened. You ever wonder how the Bible was inspired? Peter tells us, inspired by the Spirit in verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And I love this because people, you know what's funny? Unbelievers get a hold of these verses sometimes, and it's just funny how they come up with these doctrines they don't know you know they criticize how many experts do you know that of the bible that have never read it okay i've met a lot of them they're experts they know everything about the bible but they've never read it i ask them have you read it no well portions would you say that about any book you haven't read it and you're talking to me about it what if you wrote a book and i come i I criticized your book and i'd never read it what would your response be to me change the subject just like, you know, when you say the name Jesus, everything stops in a room. You say any other name, doesn't matter. You say Jesus, and it's not, you're not using it in the sense of a, of a you know, cuss word, or, you're, or you're, you know, you're really meaning his name, and all of a sudden, everyone, else, everyone has something else to do. You can say any other name in this world, doesn't matter. You say that name, there's power in that name. But unbelievers will love to quote this verse, and I've heard it. Hey, there's no pride. Everything, it's, there's no, it's all private interpretation. That's your private inter- interpretation. They try to say that everyone has this capacity to have their own interpretation of the scriptures. It falls into the whole lie of moral relativism and all of those things because, hey, you can make it say whatever you want. And unfortunately, there's people that open up the Bible weekly or monthly or on TV or whatever that make it say whatever they want. And God warns against that. That's why there's safety in going through it line by line, precept upon precept, because you, there's nowhere to hide. I can't say, hey, look at verse 20 and say something crazy. And you go, uh, 
I'm not seeing that. What version? Is that the first Fleshalonians version that you have? Or what, what version is that? You know, and, but this, this is what he's really saying. Look at it, because all you got to do is read the next verse. Isn't that important? Isn't that un- unlock a lot of things? Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, so it doesn't originate from man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they were inspired, not how we can be inspired. They were supernaturally inspired for that specific purpose. We're not writing scripture today. In Jude, it says the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Okay? So that doesn't mean that there's not prophets and prophecy and all of that. It doesn't mean that God stops speaking. It means that his written word is complete. The canon of scripture is completed. There's no more Bibles. There's no more editions. As much as people want Acts to have a chapter 29 and they name their ministries after that, and I understand why they do that and it's not a criticism, it's not going to be written down in the Bible. So we're living it out. That's great. What chapter would we be in now? Think about that. All from the early church, if they recorded all the things that God's done, how many chapters? Because the church didn't end. He said, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Till the end, he's talking about to the end of the age. I mean, that's a long book. You want to carry around that book, or however long it would be, with all those chapters. Unbelievable. So this is how prophecy was inspired by Scripture. God moved on people to write things down. That's how it happened, and that's that's why it's so valuable and God's standard. Now, in chapter two, we're told this in verse one, but. There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. He's talking, to a, he's talking about believers here, talking about in churches, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So that he, do they do it openly there? Do you see them doing it openly? No, secretly. They're not advertising it. They're not advertising it. Secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. That's our word redeemed there. That's, where we, that's the definition of redeemed, is to be purchased, to be bought. We've been bought with a price, we're told in Scripture. And bring on themselves swift destruction. And many, notice the word many there in verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. The, the way of truth. That's another way of saying Christianity. That's another way of saying the faith. The way of truth, because we are in the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. His word. Well, that's not very loving. That's not very tolerant. That's not very... Jesus said it. That's one of the few things that uh, versions can't mess up very... I mean, there's, there are some that have actually messed that up. But he said it in such a way where no one... And see, in this culture... We are inundated with this whole thing and pressure to, to, to embrace what's called pluralism, which means that there's many ways to God. And so we're, it's going to get to a point, and in many places in this country already it's to a point, where if you say that and talk like that, that's hate speech. You hate people. But see, God has the right to make, make any requirement that he wants to heaven. It's his heaven. He's God. And he's made righteousness the requirement to get into heaven. That's the requirement. Righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Which means we're all fall short. Every single one of us. 
Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us fall short because the standard is perfection. And all have fallen short. We, I mean, we have, if you have kids, you know, <laughs> you little sinner. You know, like, they don't, we don't have to teach them to deceive. We don't have to teach them to be selfish. We don't have to t- teach them any of those things. It comes naturally because they have a fallen nature. They're born with it. But then what happens in a moment in time when you trust in Christ, you repent of your sins, you receive Jesus as your, as your Savior, now you get the free gift of eternal life that's put into your life. And now you're crossed over from death to life. And now you're a new creation, the Bible says. Now you have two natures. You retain your sinful nature. I wish it went away when we receive Christ, but it doesn't. It's going to go away when we get our new bodies. So you retain that sinful nature, but you have the new nature now. You have your spirits alive. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Those natures battle against each other. And whichever one you feed is going to win out over the other. And so I think the Holy Spirit spoke to us earlier about all of us, but I don't know specifically people's circumstances and all that, but he really made it clear, as far as I heard, that he wants us to put all those things aside and put him first and he's always saying that because it's in his word so we have to guard ourselves against self-deception and so it's it's so easy to it can happen to all of us so easy it can trickle in and i hear even leaders talk about this stuff and i just go where is that in the bible you say this all this stuff i don't know a verse for that I'm sorry, I don't know a verse. You know, second in this book, he says, chapter 1, that God has given us, believers, all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's past tense, given. There's nothing that he's held out on us, but this world says, I'm all, they're, you know, God's holding out on you. Those Christians are holding out on you. They want to ruin your fun. They're like, do you realize what abundant life is? Let me just back up for a second and say what, what bondage is. Bondage to sin is being trapped in the things you know you shouldn't do. But the abundant life is freedom that Jesus provides. And that is having the capacity to do the things you know you should do. That's true freedom. That's the, that's the uh, abundant life that, to which he's called us. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when you get to walk in that kind of life. Some of you are making great progress in your growth, and it, I, it blesses me, and I'm wanting progress in my own life, and we have to all keep growing, and that's what God really, really wants for each one of us. So he says that right there in, in, in chapter 2 there, that they deny the Lord who bought them, swift destruction is coming, and many will follow their destructive ways because the, of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed, but covetousness, by rather, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Let's define covetousness first, right? What is that? How many times you see someone talk about covetousness on Facebook or post a picture about it on Instagram or, or talk about it with their friends or what, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with, I'm coveting. Not very many. Covetousness is the ungodly desire for more. Now, it's natural for us to want to know more. And even as a believer, we want more of him. We want more of God's will in our life. We want, it's so desire is not, is not evil. But it's the ungodly desire for more. It's going outside the bounds of what God has for us. What he said that we can do. What we can have for our lives. In the chapter that we're in. In the ministries that we're in. He says, you don't have, but so and so has it. And they're godly. 
That's not for you, though, he says to us. Or maybe say that is for you or whatever. And it's sinful in the sense of you're, you're wanting to have everything for you. That's where, how you can see it. And false teachers, there's people on TV. They're in churches. They have, some of them have many people there. Some of them have lots of people there. Some of them have hardly any people there. Usually if they're on TV, they have a lot of people there. And, and all they're doing is teaching people how to get all the things that they want. And they're infusing, listen, they're putting in those things inside the scriptures as best they can to try to make it work. The problem is the scripture doesn't, it talks about prosperity in a biblical sense, obviously. But we don't give to get. That's the, I mean, we get, God says you're not going to be in debt to me. You know, and, and he talks about sowing and reaping. All that's biblical. But that's not our motivation. It's our supreme motivation. Our supreme motivation is worship and loving God and being a good steward and all those things. Part of that is giving. Part of that, and I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about our time, our, our, you know, our relationships, all those things. It's all outward. When you really look at this book, the subject is God. That's the subject. It's not me. It's not people. It's not mankind. The subject is God, and the subject is, as a believer, to be outward. Our whole lives need to be outward, because if we're all about ourselves, think about this, I want you to really think about this. If we're all about ourselves, and people are teaching us to focus on ourselves, and what we can get, and all these things, and, and, and we're the focus and all that, then we're not like Jesus, are we? Jesus didn't, he said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And give my life as a ransom for many. On this earth, how selfish was Jesus? He wasn't selfish at all. His whole entire public ministry was given to others. But you would never see that in many contexts. Where it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. That's the problem. We are the problem. <laughs> we need to get our eyes off ourselves and get them onto God. And get them onto other people. And, and not hoard life's resources on ourselves. That's a miserable life. The, the great life is the abundant life is focused on God and focused on serving others and blessing others and, and being a vessel through whom God can bless people and expand his kingdom. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All the things that the Gentiles seek, all the th- cares of this world. Remember, there's one of those, there was one of those soils that couldn't, couldn't produce that crop from the word of God being planted. It was the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world. It can come in and encroach upon our heart and our focus for all of us. I don't care how long we've walked with the Lord. And so we have to have that as as a protection. How do you guard yourself? Let's leave 2 Peter and let's turn to Acts chapter 17. And I think this is probably a good time to say that there's a reason why I have you turn to things. And I don't put all the verses all for everything that we look at on the screens, which I could. I purposely don't do that. And there may be guest speakers that do. And it's not like an evil thing, so don't misunderstand me. I want you to know your Bible. I want you to know your Bible. I want you to know where things are found. We have Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, you can take it. If you don't have one, it's a gift. But we want people to know where things are. What, you know, 
I understand people have apps and they have all these things. We have a Bible in our app. It's not meant to be your only Bible. It's meant to be if you're somewhere and like, oh, what's that verse? Or I want to read while I'm waiting in line at a doctor or whatever, and I don't have my Bible with me. But to be able to have, I'm not saying you have to have a book and you're ungodly if you don't have a book. Okay, just don't misunderstand me. But I want you to know your Bible. God wants you to know your Bible. I I need to know my Bible way better than I do. Because remember, this is one book. Think about that. There's whole libraries written about this one book. Just that alone shows you that it's inspired from God. Just that alone. Because it's been used by God in so many different ways. It's beautiful. Acts 17, let's begin in verse 10. Acts 17, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So the immediate situation here is that these are Jews. They're in a synagogue. The Apostle Paul comes there um, And they come, and they're sharing. Now, Luke, the physician, is recording this by the Holy Spirit. It's being moved by the Spirit, like we talked about, to write this down. And what they did was, they said, because Paul is talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies. That's what you do with a Jew when you talk about God or whatever. And you're a Christian, you talk about... The background, the history, the prophetic stuff, all of that. And they, what they did, they didn't just say, okay, you're right about all these prophecies about Jesus. They actually checked him out. So we use this in the context of believers, which is true. That's another application of this. But he's talking about the checking the Old Testament to make sure. That's technically the narrow context here. But the application for us is we need to test everything. And John wrote, writes about it in his epistle. To test the spirits, to see they're where they're not of God. Just because someone is at a pulpit, I don't care if it's this one or anywhere else, you cannot just take their word for it. Do not believe me what I say. Don't ever put any human being so high that they are not tested by this book. Don't ever do it. You have to test it by this scripture. So they search the scriptures, verse 11, daily. Notice the word daily there. To find out whether these things were so. So they verified that all these, these things and they came to, to Christ and they received him as the Messiah and all of that. And then Paul started teaching and all of those things. And the early church passed around the Gospels. They passed around all these things and people had copies and all, all those things and they tested that. So now I want to get practical just for a few minutes before we, before we stop. What are some ways for us to be able to get grounded in, in, in the word of God and to be able to be protected from this deception? First of all, just like this is related to walking with God, but to spend time with him every day consistently. We all fall short of that. And we have to feed on the word of God. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So you would never think that you're going to be healthy physically if you ate once a week, once a month. Why would you think you're going to be healthy spiritually if you only eat? Now, if you're just starting out and you're like, hey, it's all I can do to get to there on Sundays and, you know, all that, great. I'm not criticizing you. You have to start somewhere. 
But I'm telling you where the God is going with this. He's leading you in a way into maturity to where you're grounded in this. There's so much in this book that's unbelievably eye-opening, amazing, convicting, and guiding to our lives that would get through a lot of deception and lies and all these things if we just were grounded in it more. And it's never going to end. That's the thing is it's supernatural. You read most books and you're done. Try to do that with this book. You cannot do that. You'll spend the rest of your life digging and digging and digging and learning and learning and learning. So spend time in it daily as much as you can. Study it in context. False teachers have proof texts. That's where they take a scripture and they just build a whole doctrine on it. And they just they rattle it off or whatever. And nobody ever checks out to see if that's what it was actually talking about in the passage. It really can't ever mean to us what it never meant to the original recipients first. I'm talking about the principle. How to apply it can be applied differently. But the principle carries over. And that's the challenge of any Bible student is to try to find how that principle applies to us today. Because the principle is not going to change. What it means is not going to change. How it applies, that is going to change depending on the culture. It wasn't a mistake that God wrote this when he wrote it. Because he, he, we can look at it and say, oh, you know, we don't have all the, they didn't have all the stuff that we have. And, but yet we're trying to get back to the early church in terms of, their example of turning the world upside down and, and multiplying disciples and all those things. They didn't have all those things, but we have things that are tools and they're good and we can use them, but we have to keep them in perspective. Now, looking at Scripture, you need to look at what came just before that text, what came after it. I try to include that. I try to give what's, what's there, what's, what did it say before, what did it say after, who he's writing to, all that stuff. Try to learn that stuff. Get a Bible dictionary. Get, there's, there's all kinds of tools for that. Also, you can take a class. We're going to be having classes coming up. We've had classes already. We're going to have more classes. Uh, and and um, the next one is, I believe, uh, let's see, it's the April next month, like the 25th, uh, Bible Study Methods. Um, and then two days later, on Thursday, Modesto, there's going to be a hermeneutics class. The word hermeneutic means Bible interpretation principles. So we're going to give you more detail on that coming up. But, you know, take these classes and then always test what someone says. Don't just, when someone reads a passage of scripture, look at it and go, okay, was that what it was talking about? You, it's not complicated. It really is not super complicated. You just have to see, was that what it's really saying? And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Who can testify of that? Yeah, the better you get at it. It's beautiful. Use the tools that are in the app, all of that, but... The issue is we can't afford to have our lives built on lies. We can't afford to be silent when we're supposed to speak up in love in our culture appropriately. There's a time to be quiet. There's a time to speak. We have to know God's word to be able to measure all the things that we're hearing and all of that so that we can be salt and light. As Jesus said that, um, that he said we're the salt of the earth. Jesus said you shall know the truth experientially and the truth shall set you free. That's what he said. Know the truth is experiential truth. But, but we have to live that out, what we've already had implanted in our lives. Jesus, Jesus loves the fact that we study through the scriptures. And we honor his word in, in that way. We aim to do that. But just because we do that, don't put us above this Bible. You hold us to this Bible. That's your safeguard. That's my safeguard. I'm not threatened at all by you testing me. That's the, that's the safest thing I could ever ask for. I'm not threatened by it. I love it. Hey, I, and you guys bring up some things that are amazing I didn't even see. 
And I've been studying it and everything. And you're like, hey, I didn't, did you notice that? No, I didn't. That's pretty cool. You know, it's great. Wonderful. So I think that we understand what he's trying to get at with us related to growing in his word and not being deceived out there. We have the truth. We have it. It's beautiful. Now he wants to use us as we get grounded in it. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, that your word is what it is. Protect our church, Lord, from false teaching. Protect our church from those among us that may get off course and someday and potentially want to divide the church. We pray, Father, for your protection. We pray, Lord, that you would would ruin any plans in the future, Lord, by your grace for anyone to divide this church. Thank you that there's no nothing going on and you're protecting us and thank you that there's no threat that we can see God but we want that to continue so we ask for protection and we ask father that you would just give us a desire to be with you every day and to spend that time with you put you first in everything thank you that you're gracious thank you lord that we fall short every day but you're still waiting for us every single day thank you that your throne is a throne of grace You tell us in Hebrews, Father, thank you so much that you want us to come boldly into that throne of grace every day. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.